Hello, and welcome to the Rooted in Reliability podcast, your plant performance podcast, where we dive deeper into asset management techniques and know-how. I'm your host, James Kovacic, and I will be your guide to achieving industry best practice. The Rooted in Reliability podcast is here to provide you with the insights to improve plant performance and deliver bottom line results to your organization. In case you missed the last episode, you can find the Rooted in Reliability podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the reliability.fm network. Don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Now let's dive into today's topic. Do you have plans August 25th and 26th? Add Leading Reliability Conference to your calendar. Join Iridicio, RDI Technologies, Fluke Reliability, and UE Systems for a live and in-person conference in Clearwater, Florida. Hear from the top industry leaders on industry hot topics. Each company will also be hosting pre- and post-event workshops. Don't miss out on the event of the year. To learn more about the Leading Reliability Conference and to register for the event, visit www.leadingreliability.com or check them out on LinkedIn. It is my pleasure to welcome back Simon Yagers to the podcast. Welcome back, Simon. Thank you, James. So, Simon, we were previously on talking about various different types of predictive monitoring. Specifically, the first one was around monitoring electrical systems. We talked last time about how do we actually implement these things so they're successful. And today we're going to talk about something called the capabilities trap. Now, before we get too far into that, you know, you were the founder of Semotics. Yep. Although super brief, what else can you tell us about yourself? Yeah, um, founder of Semotics. I've been involved in technology all my life, um, mostly uh, on the intersection of data and turning it into information. Really excited about, you know, technology in general and its applications in day-to-day operations. And we're now focusing really on making sure that machine learning and humans work better together. All right. Excellent. Now, in some of the past episodes, we talked about briefly the capability trap. What is the capabilities trap? Well, I found I found the capabilities trap uh, when I was when I was reading around about uh, innovation and why sometimes you well I observe that even though there is clearly a benefit of implementing new technologies that and, and both from a financial and operational perspective that that these type of projects still weren't adopted on a very large scale. So I was kind of sort of researching what is that dynamic? How is it possible that something that obviously has a benefit is not adopted uh, to the extent that you would expect based on pure economic theory? And then I found this article that sort of describes um, the cultural element, if you will, or, or sort of the, the soft elements of uh, adopting new technologies. And what I found interesting is, is how it used a sort of a systems thinking approach to modeling um, that sort of soft behavior. And, and I think uh, reading from my notes here, because the author, Professor Sturman, describes it quite well. Uh, he says, uh, the theory of the capabilities trap recognizes that the performance of any process depends on both a set of organizational capabilities and the intensity of the work effort. So he basically says what you produce per hour is first and foremost uh, uh, dependent on what you can produce, your capabilities, plus the number of hours that you put into it. And then he says, 
Capabilities include the productivity and quality of the plant, the equipment, technology, and other physical tools, and the knowledge and skills of the people who work in the systems. So, um, and then he continues, the trap arises, so the capabilities trap arises when pressure to boost short-run performance leads to greater work effort, including long hours, faster work pace, and corner cutting. And doing so puts output and and boosts output and performance in the short run, but often at the expense of investment in safety, maintenance, process improvement, and learning. And the organization's capabilities then begin to erode. So what he says is really, um, if you if you produce stuff, if you produce widgets, then if you uh, want more output and you do that by increasing work hours and so on, what you see is that you tend to neglect the other important stuff, maintenance, innovation. So that may boost performance in the short run, uh, number of hours works times current capabilities of more output, but it also erodes the capabilities over the longer run. So ultimately you end up in a worse situation. That's the all capability right. trap. So we're sacrificing, you know, all these long-term goals for that short-term performance. And as a result, we get stuck in this vicious loop where we keep trying to push harder, but we keep eroding all those capabilities we need to get out of this hole and be successful. Exactly, exactly. And I'm sure, I, I don't I think COVID, for instance, I don't know if you recognize it from your own environment, but when COVID hit, we're all hitting the panic button, right? About a year ago. And we start cutting costs. But then really this erodes your longer term capabilities. And, and, and I think certainly maintenance is very familiar with this dynamic. So, so that's really how I got, uh, got to acquainted with the topic. Yeah, no, it's you're 100% right. I don't know how many facilities I have been in where there's a larger order coming in or we're a little bit behind on meeting a customer delivery. So what do they do? They cut those planned maintenance windows. So maintenance can't get in there to do those PMs. And then the next week, they wonder why they have all this extra downtime and it gets worse and worse and worse. And they just keep pulling maintenance time and the equipment keeps eroding. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and the, the interesting thing is that, that um, the, the reason why this is, happens quite often, why we sort of sacrifice long-term performance for short-term gains, is that short-term gains are immediate benefit, right? If I work 15 hours tomorrow instead of eight, I have seven more hours of output. But if in those seven hours my maintenance team would have made sure that I could work that same eight hours the next day and so on, then um, uh, if, if, if that falls away, then, then your capabilities, they erode. And it's not just maintenance, but capabilities are also things like uh, your internal skill set, process improvements, those kind of things, and, and, and uh, the skills of your, your people. So what it really says is uh, to stay on track, you need to be mindful of the fact that you need to continually invest not just in maintenance, but also in your people, in your processes, and so on. Um, but again, the, the short-term gain is quite immediate. So you have that sort of what they call in psychology the recency effect. You attribute those short-term gains to the immediate action. The problem is those investments that we're mentioning here, they take a bit longer to take hold or to have an effect. And interestingly enough, uh, or the, uh, so, sorry, they call that worse before better behavior. 
So investment in new capabilities typically shows a worse before better. For one thing is to do those investments in new capabilities, you have to uh, take away work time, right? So production time to focus on maybe on your training or something else. Um, and conversely, the effect is probably not immediate. It takes a bit of time to get acquainted to a new process and so on. So when it does take effect, there is a likelihood, well, not a likelihood, but certainly the possibility that the benefits of that uh, training, for instance, are not attributed to the training, but to something else, because it's not immediate. So that's that's an interesting dynamic, I think. Yes, absolutely. Now, why do we need to be aware of this capabilities trap? You know, we're talking about maintenance. There's a piece around technology and process. Why do we got to be aware about this? And how do we kind of manage some of it? Well, I think I've, I think we have to be aware of it uh, because neglecting uh, the capabilities trap uh, means probably that our 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 long term production will uh, will erode over time. Um, it, for one thing, those capabilities they 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 are like a stock, as Professor Sturman calls it in 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 his article, "How to Save a Leaky Ship." He says, um, um, for instance. Maintenance is obviously a very clear example. If you don't perform maintenance, your machine will ultimately fail. But also think of skills. Skills become outdated, so you have to have training in place or a training program to learn new skills. Uh, you probably need to invest in new technologies and all those kind of things. Uh, and if you don't do that, you'll fall behind. I think that's clear as day. Um, and, and, and again, because of that recency effect, because of the fact that it gets worse before better, also because of the fact that uh, managers are typically uh, judged by their short-term gains, uh, there's this real danger of falling into the trap because we're focused on the short-term and not on the long-term. All right. I agree. You know, we're generally judged on that weekly performance, monthly performance, maybe quarter performance, not what are we doing now to set us up for success one or two years down the road? Now, absolutely. I don't know if you got the answer to this and maybe you do, but how do managers strike that balance then between being measured short term, but making sure we're successful in the long term? Well, I think there's a couple of things that, 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 that we can do to sort of protect ourselves from falling into that trap. I think first and foremost, we shouldn't expect uh, quick turnarounds when we start new projects. We should take the long view. We should do careful planning, but we shouldn't expect a quick turnaround. I think number two, I think it makes sense to consider the metrics and, and keeping that long-term goal in mind. Uh, what are our capabilities currently? How can we assess whether they're eroding or not? How are we doing with regards to uh, KPIs in terms of, uh, of, of, of maintenance performance? Are we looking for overall equipment efficiency, other types of things that can, can be early indica indicators that our capabilities are slipping? So it's about uh, ex expectation management. It's about long-term planning. It's about measuring those effects. And I think... Um, regardless of what your long-term plans are, how you will execute them, you should be willing and able to invest in capabilities even when times are tough, and you should be, be, be investing in capabilities even when times are good. 
So those are a couple of things I think make sense to consider when for long-term planning and so on. Yep. No, I agree with that 100%. One of the things I would do, even in a very reactive maintenance organization, is I would make sure I put aside one hour or two hours a week to look at something that I have to do long-term, whether it was doing a PM optimization, whether it was setting up a new PDM route, that one or two hours a week thinking about what do we got to do in the future? Not a lot right now, but every week it's slowly built up to the point where we could actually make that switch without a huge sacrifice of the short-term performance either. And, and, and in your view, what are your experiences? Do, do you recognize this capability strap and, and how to deal with that uh, from, from your work? I see it in a lot of different places. So whether it's a client that I'm working with, you know, even even sometimes example in our organization, you know, there are times where there's a lot of stuff going on and certain things like you're talking about the training, the upskilling, you know, that might get pushed a couple of weeks or a couple of months because of all the other things. So yeah. I recognize it. Um, yeah. And I think this isn't just a manufacturing thing or a technology thing. This is across all businesses. I think even in your personal life, right, where you sort of, uh, if, if you continue to work and work and never spend time with your family, you're, you are in fact falling into that capability strap. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And then same thing for your own personal stuff, right? I, yeah. I like to make it to the gym. I like to do those things. <laughs> Sometimes other things get delayed. And once again, short term versus long term, right? Yeah. They, 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 my gym now calls me a sponsor, which means I pay, but I don't go. It's their preferred <laughs> model, by the way, but that's not a matter, I suppose. <laughs> so this capabilities trap, kind of circling back to, you know, maintenance and innovation and technology. What does this have to do with the innovation that we're looking at in maintenance departments with, whether it's sensors, implementation of technology projects, those sorts of things? Yeah, I think, I mean, innovations almost by definition or perhaps by definition are investments in capabilities. Uh, so, so typically we invest in new technologies because we want to build new capabilities or we want to do the same things better, cheaper, faster, whatever you not. And certainly today, digital transformation really is, is what it's all about, right? Um, I think across many industries, but certainly in heavy industries where, where maintenance is probably a core competency, what we're seeing is that, um, um, you know, investments in digital transformation tend to have uh, positive benefits on energy waste, waste reduction in general, output and so on. So in those environments where there's lots of uh, innovation, uh, you should take stock of that capability strap. Uh, for instance, the, the fact that that uh, that worse before better dynamic, where you have this uh, where you have to assume that if you start working on new projects, that you probably will see that before they sort of start to generate additional revenues or start to have an effect on your uh, process optimization, or pro uh, that that they, they that you will see a bit of fallback. For one thing, you have project teams or, or perhaps um, teams that will use that, that, that new technology on a day-to-day -day basis have to be trained on doing that. And we can't assume that they'll be uh, proficient right from the start. So that key element of the, uh, the capability strap that worse before better behavior is, is, is almost always part of new innovation 
processes. So, uh, so I think that capability strap is 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 highly important there. I think what we're also seeing for for innovation in in sort of the reliability domain in general that it really makes sense to start with what what McKinsey calls the bottom line value backwards. So start with the end result in mind and see how you can how you can uh, what you have to do to capitalize on those opportunities. But also uh, you know present a a clear vision uh, you know a phased roadmap. How are we going to get to where we want to be? Uh, we have to look at uh, the infrastructure, right? Because I think uh, particularly in this world of Internet of Things, uh, we see a lot of sort of isolated innovation. We, uh, we implement a new widget. That widget can do something very well. But is it part of the wider uh, wider uh, community? Is it, is it widely adopted? Can we scale it across the globe? So um, across the, the more complexity you have, uh, the, the more opportunities for the capability strap to uh, close, so to speak, because um, you will back out of your innovation project before it has the chance to overcome that worst before better behavior. And uh, you also increase the chance that at some point the desired performance goes up and we're again focusing on that short-term gain by working harder and not investing in improving and our capabilities. So I think that dynamic is certainly apparent as well. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out Iridicio's IBL blended learning for maintenance and reliability professionals. This SMRP accredited project-based curriculum will take you through all aspects of a maintenance and reliability program and provides you with all the tools you need to generate a 30 times return on investment for your organization and a set of credentials from the University of Tennessee for you. You can find out more at ibltraining.com. Yeah, it's interesting, the worst before better concept that you mentioned. Um, you know, we're working with clients and their maintenance and reliability transformation. We always yeah. say once we get over the initial excitement of this project, there becomes this valley of despair is what we call it. Because we're stuck doing stuff the old way while we're trying to re- redo the business processes, train people up, do all those things so they can do it the new way. And they're stuck in this area where performance actually drops a little bit because they're stuck in both the old, old world and the new world. They haven't quite made that transition yet. So it seems very similar to that type of thing that we see with people. You call it the valley of despair? Yes. Where, where, where does that come from? There's a change management model that talks about uh, employee engagement as they go through a large organizational change. The very yeah. beginning, it has yeah. a tendency to improve a little bit because of the Hawthorne effect. Then once they realize it's a whole bunch of work and they don't really know how far that's going to be, they go down. And then through coaching, through reinforcing, through proper communication, and like you said, having a good project plan, all those things, we'll generally see it kind of come back up to where they were before. And if we keep coaching properly, then it will exceed where they were before for performance levels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love that term, value of despair. But I, th- I think it, it, that, that sort of general dynamic is is so important. You need to, It's not just that you need to know where you're going, but you probably also need a bit of a push from management. You need a bit of help, a bit of support to get through that value of despair. Because yep. the only way is up is simply not what I'm seeing uh when working on projects, certainly not on new projects that, that have their own challenges. 
No, and what, what we've what we've come to find is managing that valley of despair is it's driven by two main things. One, what is the culture of the organization? So how we can influence that is if we have good communication, that valley of despair won't go as deep. Mm-hmm. How wide or how long that valley of despair is is based on how good of a plan do we have? Because if people see short-term goals and they're not just looking at the goal that's three years down the road, they can mm-hmm. work in, okay, I do this, then I do this, then I do this. And that gives them a roadmap out of there. Yeah. So we find if we got a good project plan and we got good communication, we can manage the length and depth of that valley of despair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and when you mentioned uh, the culture, um, one of the things I love about uh, the Professor Sturman's work around that uh, capability strap is that he he's took a, a, a systems modeling or systems thinking approach, uh, which is, I think, inherently sort of feels technical to something that can be, uh, you know, on the softer side of things, the culture. And I think... What what I find about culture is that it is often used as a scapegoat because it, you cannot calculate culture, right? You cannot, you you can hardly put a direct number to it. So whenever something is messed up, whenever we are in that valley of despair, let's blame the culture because we can't pin that down to a metric, and therefore we cannot blame somebody directly. And that's that's. I find that's one of the interesting things about uh, Professor Sturman's work is that when you apply a systems thinking uh, approach or systems modeling approach to it, you don't need to have a specific number, but everybody knows that if you work more hours, you can innovate less hours because you have a fixed set of resources. If you innovate less, your uh, capabilities erode over time. So that's, that's, I I love the fact that whereas uh, everybody understands the impact of work culture, if you quantify it, even nerds like me sort of cannot use it as a scapegoat. It, it, you know, it, it, well, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. It's very, very hard to measure, but when we're doing these larger projects, we know that if there's a problem with the culture, we're generally not communicating well enough. Because mm-hmm. if you're not communicating well enough, rumors start. And what happens when rumors start? It goes negative. And that valley goes deeper. So yeah. if a valley is going deep, deeper than what we would normally expect, it's generally a process of the communication from the project, the steering committee not providing the right information, um, yeah. those types of things. So yeah. we don't have an exact number, but we know what influences it, what can help it. And it comes down to communication and training Absolutely. and awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in your experience, how have you seen successful innovators overcome this capability strap? Yeah, I mean, certainly. Uh, I, I think uh, we've, for instance, in our, in our own experience, we've been fortunate to work with uh, Nourion, uh, formerly known as uh, Axos uh, Specialty Chemical. Well, they've been Nourion for a while now, by the way. Uh, and and uh, what, what I've we were invited to an event called Imagine Chemistry. This was in 2018. And at Imagine Chemistry, uh, what they did, they, they, brought, um, they brought together senior management from Nurion uh, with uh, companies such as ours. Back, back in the day, we were like 20 people or so, so, so fairly small startups. And um, at that event, 
we made a long-term planning with Nurion, focusing on some of the things that McKinsey mentions, for instance. All right, let's first calculate a realistic business case, but also a clear vision and roadmap to get there. Um, they, we focused on, on things like uh, the technology stack that is needed, also make that scalable. Uh, we wanted to be also uh, build a, uh, an ecosystem of technology partners around that and really drive that uh, transformation from the top. Um, but what they explicitly acknowledged is that worse before better dynamic. Um, they, they understood that you have to invest in new technologies and that you have to do that in a longer term time frame uh, to make sure that they sort of materialize in something that you could use on a day-to-day basis. And for us, that has worked really well. I certainly hope for Nurium as well. I mean, as, as since then, we're now deployed on around uh, uh, seven sites across uh, the globe, uh, expanding our work with them. Um, but... Uh, in that sort of that three, four year time frame, we've hit our fair share of uh, setbacks. But because we had uh, a shared understanding of the roadmap, because we kept investing both in the relationship as well as in the technology and how it's being applied, uh, we've, we've managed to overcome them. And now it's a matter of um, uh, getting better and better and better. And in fact, uh, with Nurian, for instance, and with Vopak, we are working on um, uh, additional projects that focus on using electrical waveform or electrical signature analysis to reduce energy waste. Uh, so that that and but that really started with their implicit and explicit acknowledgement of that worse before better behavior and of the fact that they have to invest in their capabilities for a prolonged period of time to actually capitalize on the opportunity. So um, yeah, amazing experience. All right, excellent. Now, have you seen the results of anyone ignoring this capability strap? Well, I, I, I have to look no further than myself. <laughs> I'm a work harder <laughs> type of guy. So, no, uh, well, um, so today, it, it, well, I say it as a bit of a joke, but I do recognize the fact that on a very personal level, my, my intention has always been to, you know, if, if something is not working out, uh, work harder, push harder, right? Uh, whereas, as you mentioned, it sometimes takes... Um, it's, the best is to step back, reflect, am I working on the right things? Am I doing it smart enough? So that is something that I'm learning, uh, 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 well, more and more. My wife says I probably haven't learned a bit, but uh, <laughs> I, feel, I feel I'm making progress. But I think, I mean, um, we, we touched on, on the effects of COVID earlier. Um, now, I think, for instance, in the, the uh, I know in the U.S. airline um, uh, industry, in the airports industry, um, I've heard about, you know, uh, passenger rates dropping by as much as 90 percent uh, uh, during the height of the pandemic. But I also hear that U.S. is obviously very good at bouncing back. Right. So now they're at a full capacity or more. But I heard that the challenge that they now have is that they laid off lots of skilled people. Uh, who are now deployed in steel and chemicals and so on, getting those people back is really difficult. So in response to a uh, performance shortfall, they fired uh, or, or they, you know, they optimized costs. We shouldn't call it firing. They optimized cost, And as a result, uh, now they're sort of facing the consequences of that. So it, it's a very real effect in that industry in some cases. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely is. I remember, you know, going back, I had a pandemic. I'd be one of 20 or 30 people on a plane 
Yeah. When I, when I flew last week, that airport and plane was completely full. So they're bouncing back very, very quickly. But like yeah. you said, then you see challenges with equipment getting delayed. Therefore, flights get delayed and all these other things coming around yeah. now. Yeah. And I'm not, I mean, the pandemic is obviously a very special case. And, and I, I mean, it's a once in a hundred years uh, sort of event, right? Um, and, and I'm not saying that at the time that they had to make these cost-cutting measures or had to take them, that, that, that they were wrong or short-sighted. It was, I suppose, very, you know, panic broke out. But regardless of why why they did what they did or what their intentions were, what you can see is if you start focusing on that very short-term future, then it can have very negative consequences for, for later when, when, when things change, when you are again in a full plane instead of uh, sharing it with uh, 19 other souls. Yep, absolutely. And I've seen that play out across other industries in this, based on yeah. the pandemic response as well. So it's not just airlines. It happened all over the place. But on the other hand, I mean, steel, for instance, is uh, I read about somebody that that steel is is bouncing back in in uh, and and somebody called it a historical rebound. Is this something sort of as a general observation in industry on your side of the ocean? What are your views? I don't do a lot with steel, so I can't mm-hmm. talk to steel too much. I know uh, lumber and wood products. Yeah. Astronomical growth. Astronomical Seriously? growth. Yep. Interesting. At least where I'm at, the housing demand is, is far outpaces what it was before. They can't build them fast enough. Lumber is in such a demand that, you know, before the pandemic, I go get a two by four for $3.50. Now they're yeah. going for 19, 20 bucks. Seriously? Yep. Times uh, five, six in, in a couple of months. Yep. So there, I'm seeing it in other industries. Well, if you buy two by fours, you don't need to go to the gym, right? So there's a benefit of uh, you can save on that. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Simon, we've talked a lot about the capabilities trap. What is the one thing you want our listeners to take away from the conversation today? Yeah, I think it is expect worse before better. The the, the article, uh, How to Save a Leaky Ship, is really great for, for a number of things, uh, for, for the fact that it models sort of this almost cultural element of investing in, 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 in technologies and so on. But even if you're not familiar with uh, with the, the, the sort of the systems behind it, what we have to know is if we innovate, we shouldn't expect results right away. We should take a long-term view. We should uh, make a plan. We should build this sort of backwards. Where do I want to end up? What do I have to do uh, tomorrow and today? But expect uh, that worst before better because the worst before better effect is typically what kills a project. If you push on, if you go through the valley of despair, there's a pot of gold at the end. Is that a, a saying we can introduce here today? Yep. I All would right. agree. So excellent. So yeah, we definitely have to consider that worse before better. Everyone's learning. We're innovating. We got to push through that. And as we do, we'll get that pot of gold at the end of it. So Absolutely. I definitely like it. Yeah. Now, Simon, where can people find out more about you, semiotics? All these other great things that you were doing. Well, our website has just been updated. Uh, it's samotics.com, S-A-M-O-T-I-C-S.com. 
Uh, we're quite active on LinkedIn, uh, where we post, uh, for instance, every Wednesday when we detect a failure, we we describe how you you know how, for instance, how you detect cavitation in 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 an electrical signal, those kind of things. We have regular blog posts. Um, recently, uh, Jeroen van der Veer, former Shell uh, CEO, joined us as an advisor. So those kind of things that we celebrate, we typically do that on our website and on LinkedIn. Um, we're based in Netherlands, so uh, Europe is still pretty pretty tight with lockdowns. We haven't planned any events uh, for the uh, for the foreseeable future, uh, but our website and, and LinkedIn covers most of what we do. All right, excellent. Now. I'll make sure to put links to the website, your LinkedIn profile, the paper on how to save a leaky ship, which formed the basis of this conversation today. Yeah. Um, do you have any other favorite resources you want to share? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, so. There's three books I wanted to mention. Uh, one is um, Where Good Ideas Come From, from Stephen Johnson. Uh, and Where Good Ideas Come From describes, I believe, uh, six, six, ways how to come up with with new ideas and i think one of the things that i remember from that book uh, is that it, most of most ideas are a recom- are basis based on recombining existing technologies right uh, an example would be if you have a digital phone then and, and you have a digital camera at at, at some point they'll converge it's not uh, it's, it's not rocket science to expect that to happen Right. And, and that sort of what you can expect to happen is described in the second book. It's called What Technology Wants by Kevin Kelly, who is, uh, I think, the founder of Wired. And he's still uh, he's still associated, he's still an editor at Wired magazine. And, and what he describes in his book, uh, What Technology Wants, is how technology almost evolves like an organism, like it has its will on its own, which is... Um, you know, partially because of that combination effect of combining new uh, new technologies into new things, and and I think you can safely assume that most technologies will become uh, better, uh, smarter, um, uh, safer, cheaper over time, and being recombined. And Kevin Kelly does, I think, a very a very good. Uh, well, he describes masterfully, in my view, how that how you could look at technology almost like an organism in the way that it evolves over time. And then uh, the third one is um, Abundance by uh, Peter Diamandis. Uh, and he he has a specific sort of way that uh, digital technologies uh, um, evolve over time. So in, in, in Abundance, he writes about the 6D framework. He says... Uh, once a technology gets digitized, it will uh, um, become first uh, deceptively uh, grow deceptively uh, uh, slow, then it becomes disruptive, then it becomes demonetized, and then it becomes dematerialized and democratized. And if you allow me for, uh, he describes this at, at uh, by giving the example of digital photography. So uh, analog photography became digitized. Uh, the first digital photographs were very poor, obviously, 0.01 uh, megabytes in file size, if you will. So that was 
um, you know, a poor photo at best. And in fact, I believe that Canon said no to the technology because they initially, uh, even though they invented it, uh, because of that poor quality. And so it then starts with the second D, it starts to improve deceptively slow, right? So 0.1 becomes 0.2, becomes 0.4. But because of that deceptiveness, people tend to not notice it. But then at some point in exponential growth, uh, it becomes disruptive because when you're uh, when you're um, uh, when you have uh, you know uh, a couple of megabytes of, uh, or a puck in megapixels, you get really great f- photos. Um, but once it gets disruptive, it also gets cheaper. So it first becomes demonetized, essentially free. Uh, again, a digital camera that is integrated into your uh, phone, or sorry, the digital camera first becomes cheap. Then it becomes dematerialized in the sense that it becomes integrated into your phone and then it becomes democratized and everybody uses it. So the uh, abundance by Peter Diamandis writes it about it in much more clear way than I can talk about it. It's a great, great resource. All right. Excellent. It's funny because what technology wants came up. I think it was earlier this week in another podcast I was recording. So it's the second oh, time this week. So now I definitely have to pick it up. Yeah, who who can do you can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, it was around uh, CMMS. So de- yeah. it was a developing a new CMMS, how to build a CMMS, that sort of stuff. And they were talking yeah. about as they were going through that design process, evaluating what they're going to do, that sort of thing. Yeah, they looked at what technology wants, and that kind of gave them an idea of kind of how do we want to build this, how do we want to shape this, that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think, and, and maybe to add to that a little bit, is that, that um, what I think, for instance, in, in the steel, you have this, this process called the hot strip mill, right? So it ingests uh, thick slabs of steel, and at the end of the process, it puts out um, um, a, a sheet metal, such as used in cars and dishwashers and so on. So if you think of that, what it basically is, is a collection of uh, rotating equipment that has one job to do, uh, orchestrated by the layer above, and that layer above, the automation layer, takes inputs for probably from the, from the corporate level. So I think when you look at it from a what technology wants perspective, uh, that, that hot strip mill of the future will look more like a, a, a Tesla car than uh, a, a, a standard production, than like a, a train in a sense, because a train has one way to go and you can speed it up and slow it down to some extent. But that Tesla car has a lot more freedom. And uh, so if you, if you get into your Tesla car in the morning, it will probably have your destination from your Google Calendar and, and it will uh, route you to that destination. Uh, but nowadays, or you can, you can uh, include your CO2 um, uh, waste uh, to, to, to take the CO2 optimized route. I think the same works for that uh, hot strip meal of the future where it takes your destination is your, your order from a client it will calculate how it can best um, um, create that steel in the most energy efficient manner. But how it goes about it is about a, an automation layer, the car system uh, turning or, or determining the, the speed and torque of the shafts of the car or of your pumps and conveyors and so on to ultimately orchestrate you towards that flat place sheet of steel or to your grandma if that's your destination in the car. And, and, and all of that, if you look at it from a, um, a what technology wants kind of lens, it all makes sense. 
And I could be wrong, but probably not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to have to read it now because yeah. it's come up multiple times. So, Simon, I want to thank you for taking the time to ta- chat to us today about the capabilities trap. It's good to highlight these types of things because they impact everything, our traditional maintenance activities as we're deploying new projects and technology and how we can be aware and kind of work around some of these things. So I definitely appreciate it. Thank you, James. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by Iridicio. Be sure to check out iridicio.com for a free copy of their ebook, A Smarter Way of Preventative Maintenance. This ebook will allow you to review your current maintenance program and eliminate the non-value-added work you're doing, which is most likely causing you more downtime than it is preventing. www.iridicio.com.